Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain. I'm a psychotherapist and the author and originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director at our studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life, our minds, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share with you the tip of the week about feeling connected and included wherever you are in the world. And then I'm excited to bring you Debbie Godfrey, certified parent educator with over 30 years of expertise in the parenting education field. And through her business, Positive Parenting, she has been in schools and community centers around the world teaching parents and how to do positive parenting. In the Ask Me segment, I'll answer the question, am I committed? Am I in a committed relationship and am I a committed relationship material? And then I'll bring you Dale Walsh, a coach for the families of those diagnosed with schizophrenia. He himself has been diagnosed for the past 46 years and has been episode free for the past 29 and she, he lives single and uh, very successful. Dale coaches through Live Love Method. Yes, Live Love Method. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and podcast and connect with me through all of the social medias. Love to hear from you, your questions, your comments, and all of that. But first, here is the tip of the week. the tip of the week. I just came back from Barcelona, Spain, and Lisbon, Portugal. I spent some days in Barcelona and then traveled to Lisbon, going back to Barcelona, and then coming back to U.S. So grateful to be able to travel again after a year and a half. Um, although there's much paperwork to be done for airlines and entrance to each country, but it was still truly worth it to be able to travel and experience the world again. Um, our promise with my husband was to see two countries that we had not seen before until we have visited all the major cities in every country on earth before we aged so much that we couldn't really enjoy all the traveling. And the, the pandemic took away almost two years of that opportunity. Oh, well, we're on back on track again, hopefully. And this will um, allow us to, to go around the world more and more with all the vaccinations and things that are happening. Traveling around the world reminded me of how much we are similar and how beautifully we're so different. As I sat in uh, the restaurants in Lisbon and uh, Barcelona, and I watched people from across the world with different colors, ethnicities, languages, um, religions, ideas, beliefs mingled, and they were all fine together. And um, it, although people have different types of belief system, but when you actually looked at just people kind of like hanging out together and everywhere. 
um, being beside each other, doing business with each other. And um, it was all great. So it all looked like as if we all belong together. I guess we all do. I also witnessed the tapestry of the differences that brought the beauty of different languages, culture, art, and every experience. As we sat in the restaurants everywhere around us, we were talking in different languages and you couldn't even understand, but that showed that people were together, being who they were, being comfortable with who they were and feeling safe in, um, in, in these areas to be, you know, from wherever they were. There's pride in the air interwoven with hospitality and warmth. The confidence of thousands of years of experience with the welcoming of anyone who wanted to join and honor their heritage and culture and art. Um, don't we all wanna be seen, honored, cherished and connected? And then what gets us separated is when we become exclusive in honoring and judging others. There's such a beauty in our inclusiveness, being welcomed into everyone's culture in the world, knowing that we are different and yet so beautifully similar. And wanting as a human being we're similar. We have the same needs, the same desires, the same wants. And then, there's a beauty in each one of us that is different and can be honored. Knowing that we can learn so much from each other and everyone regardless of their age, their ethnicity, religion, and where they come from. So, you know, the drill. I always ask the question so you can become aware of yourself. How do you see yourself differently from everybody else, even your own family, even people who are close to you have the same genetic background? And then obviously too, how do you see yourself differently with people who are from different backgrounds, different religious, ethnicity, colors, cultures, countries, um, different languages. How do you see yourself though similar to others? People with the same genes, your family, friends, um, coworkers, people in your own community. And then go across the world. How do you see yourself different with people who have completely the different color than you, different ethnicity than you? They speak different languages. They come from other countries. They even come from some countries where culturally you have heard that you guys have not always been the best of friends. But how are you similar to them? On what basis do you judge others? As I was sitting in the restaurant and constantly looking and you know, you find your brain come in with judgments. And then I started watching and wondering, where are these judgments coming from? How come when I look at someone, I have these categories? And it's not that the judgment have to be harsh, but it was more like just categories that were there that would show up. And I would just have a specific, let's say, way of saying, okay, people with you know, black colors are this, or uh, blondes are this, or brunettes are this, or this color of skin or um, stereotypes that we all have. We all have it. We've been raising communities that it's there. It's all over the place. So the point is not like, oh, I don't judge or I don't stereotype. It's like, what basis do I judge? And what basis do I do stereotype? And how is this beneficial for me? And it must have been beneficial at one point if you categorize it in your head. There's no wrong or right answer. This is more for you to be aware of yourself and see what does, because those 
when you're aware, then you can pick and choose. If you're just doing this automatic, you live on automatic basis. On what basis do you think you're judged by others? And how can you feel included being anywhere in the world and feel that you belong? How can you feel excluded from even being among your own family? You can go to Thanksgiving dinner as it's coming and you could be among your own family and you're like, I don't know who these people are, but they have nothing to do with me. So how can you feel excluded? What happens? What are the differences and similarities with people who you feel excluded? Who do you need to be to feel included anywhere, whether you choose to be there or not, but at least feel included? And it doesn't have to be always, well, they need to include me. It's more like, how can you be and who do you need to be to be included anywhere? Sometimes it's us that we exclude ourselves in the name of, oh, that group excludes me. And maybe I'm the one who's first excluding them in my own brain or exclude myself from them. And that's where the reflection shows. For more observational and integrative skills, go to my book, Life Reset, the awareness integration path to create the life you love. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain, and I am excited to be with Debbie Gottfried today. She's a certified parent educator, brings over 30 years of expertise in the parenting education field. We all need it, trust me. <laughs> Through her business, Positive Parenting, in schools and community centers around the world, she has served many organizations. Debbie conducted teacher training for eight schools during a 30-day period in five states across India. And um, she has conducted eight parent education workshops in Beijing, China during a two week period in February of 2008. And she's the past director of Foster and Kinship Care Education Adventurer College. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, you teach parents uh, how to be with their children. I think that um, it's one of the most important skills that everybody needs whomever is intending even to become a parent they need it i know that you know when we're trying to um get a driver's license we have to do all this stuff in order to be able to drive and then um we rely on how we were raised we rely on not to do the things we didn't like our parents doing to us and uh most of people um, they are uh, clueless when it comes to it because it runs in, in the speed of light um, um, in front of us. The children in this era are learning so much out there and things are happening that we were quite constantly kind of like, huh, what do I do now? And I have no idea what to do. I saw a poster, Debbie, which said it was this uh, this monkey which was holding on and then was kind of like scratching his head. And then underneath it, it said, um, when I finally figured out all the answers to the world question, they changed all the questions. Oh, oh no. <laughs> this is almost like parenting, you know, uh, developmental stages of children. Because the minute you kind of like figure out what to do with a two-year-old, they kind of change to a three-year-old and we're like, now what? So 
take the floor, let us know what is it that you do in positive parenting and how do you support parents? Yeah, thank you so much. I, I love what you said and it's true. We didn't get the manual we deserved when we had these kids. And so I like to see parenting class, you know, as a way to, to get that information that you needed so badly and maybe didn't get when your kids were born. And it's also true, as you said, that we bring with us what we, how we were parented. And if that was good, that's great. That's helpful. That's going to help you in your journey. But most of us had some less than wonderful parenting. And the problem is you can say, okay, I know I'm not going to do that you know, whatever our parents did that we didn't like. But when you're under stress, the stress is going to cause you to have this instinctive reaction to go back to whatever that was. If it was yelling, you're going to yell. If it was spanking, you're going to spank. Whatever kind of chaos or craziness that you were raised with that you so desperately don't want to give your children is what comes up when you're tired or when you're stressed or when you've run out of tools. And that's, I think the value of parenting classes is to give yourself so many more options than what you might've been raised with. So many more different ideas of what to do in situations and just expand your choices for what to do when discipline situations come up with your children. And so that's why I love to just help parents figure out like, what do I do? And I also love what you said too, about the, the ages and stages and how they fly by so quickly. And it's so true. We spend 18 to 20 years on this journey of parenting, which should be about a quarter of our life. And I don't know that all of us give it the focus and the attention that it deserves. I mean, really the best thing you can do when you have children is to make that raising of your children a priority because it's, it's going to be here and gone before you know it. <laughs> and, and you want to do the best that you can, you know, it's a real bummer when you get your kids get to adult age and you don't either don't have a good relationship with them or you're not happy with the way it went, you know, I feel like we all need to do our best and whatever that is. And to me, it included getting more education about parenting and what I can do. Yes. I work a lot. Uh, you know, I'm a therapist. I've been a therapist for 30 years and I work also with a lot of couples. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. Most of the couples, you know, they can handle it. They'll do things, you know, as uh, they, the first year of marriage or the second year of marriage, and there are things they don't like, and that's fine. You know, they'll figure out how to negotiate, have their alone time and negotiate all that until the children show up. Well, most of their fight starts because of parenting style. And many times I just share with them, like, can you please get help before <laughs> parenting? It doesn't have to be a fight about my way was right and your way is wrong. My parents did it this way and see how I turned out pretty well, you know, so don't worry about it. It's I don't like the way your parents raised you. And this fight goes back and forth. And a lot of times I'm like, you're not going to negotiate on this one. Can we just go to a parenting coach? Can we go to someone who's an expert in early development? And they can actually give you from the latest research that's out there and how to raise a child for this era, not the last era, but for this era with everything that your children have to actually deal with. Like I, 
you know, I'm 60 years old. My, as a child in another country, I did not have to deal with a lot of the stuff that children are dealing with today, depending on where you live and, you know, the scenario of what the children have to face as far as friendships, social media, guns at school, drugs at school, sex at school, uh, you know, everything that they have to go through. And it's very difficult for parents also to try to be one step forward about everything else that they have to do with their children. So they really, really need a lot of skills. Um, you brought this concept of positive parenting. Can you share a bit about uh, what that entails? Well, to me, positive parenting is a way to parent where you discipline and you correct your children's misbehavior when it occurs, but you do that without breaking their spirit. So without spanking, without yelling, without grounding, to find ways to discipline that corrects their behavior, but at the same time builds their self-esteem. So for example, when you're dealing with the power struggle, one of the ideas is to help your child find a useful way to feel valuable and powerful rather than this unuseful way that they're doing of defying us or not listening to us. And so we just go on and on with how can we find a better way to help this child behave in a way that's more appropriate right now, because what they do is they figure out ways that are inappropriate to get their needs met, you know, and all children need to feel loved, need to feel valuable, need to feel powerful, need to feel like they have a place, they need to experiment and explore, they need to be special. So they're going to either get those needs met through appropriate behavior or inappropriate behavior, but they're going to get them met through whatever works. And so many of us have come up with these dysfunctional ways of, of, nurturing our kids that they think that they get those needs met by not listening, by not doing what we say. And so we can do, we can do much better if we learn the nuances of children. And just to pick up on what you were saying about couples, I love that because it's so true. And what happens is couples usually come to me with one of them is a little more strict and one of them is a little more lenient. And so the strict one sees the lenient one being lenient. So they get more strict. So the lenient one gets more lenient. And then you have two parents completely working against each other, which is a field day of misbehavior for the children. They love this. They get away with everything. And so my coaching for the parents in these circumstances, and half of the parents are going to hate this and half are going to love this, <laughs> is that the parent who's too lenient needs to follow the lead of the parent who's more strict. And when you can set it up that way, where the strict parent is feeling supported, what you do is the parents can work back toward the middle. So when the strict parent feels supported, they can let up a little bit. Um, there's, and then this more lenient parent can learn to set more boundaries and be more consistent from the firm parent. And so then they come, you know, they're never going to be the same. We don't want the same parent. We're going to learn different things from each of them, but we're going to come into a middle range instead of being out here on the edges where we're working against each other. And it's amazing how quickly parents can come together when they make a plan like that. Very much. Two things as you were talking showed up for me. Um, one is what you talked about, um, uh, power struggle. And I think that um, every single human being obviously wants to experience their freedom. Every child, as they grow up, they want to experience their freedom of choice, wanting to learn and do things their way and figure it out their way. Obviously, it's the parent's um, job. Definitely, it's their job to guide their, uh, their child into uh, some sort of structure and discipline in order for the child to move forward and learn and do all of that. And there's a piece that happens with the power struggle here where 
when uh, parents usually have a guideline in their head that life should be this way, then obviously they will push the child to only be that way. And then they'll have the struggle from the child and they'll start the power struggle. The other way also the off balance of, I'm just gonna follow whatever my child wants and I'll just allow the child to do whatever. I remember going to somebody's house and they had this beautiful, amazing, gorgeous home and everyone, every wall had crayons on it. <gasps> And it was like, oh, what a beautiful artwork. What happens is, yeah, we just, you know, we are to the concept of the children have to do whatever they want. And they had put crayon everything. And I said, well, how do you handle when you go to somebody else's house where they are not allowed to do that? Because you could create a you know, space for them to be able to do that. But when you give them this kind of a range, and uh, the mother said, actually, that, uh, yes, when they go to their grandparents, um, they get confused because the grandparents doesn't allow this. I said, well, the world doesn't allow it. You can't take crayon and go, you know, anywhere in the world and do whatever you want. The world has some structure. So it's this concept of also the balance between um, between learning what the best for your child is and, and allowing the child to experience the freedom um, who, of who they are, plus the concept of the structure and the same balance you were talking about, whether it's too lenient or the too structured or, you know, too disciplined, it also shows up about um, how the child may get confused between what's appropriate in their own home versus the world that they actually have to get to live into, which is not going to allow them to just be whatever, <laughs> I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, I mean that was that's an extreme example, more extreme than I've ever heard of of this idea of child led. And I do believe in a lot of child led activities, but with boundaries and appropriate boundaries. And I see this as it usually starts around two or three years old. A child's learning that independence, and I'm separate from my mom, and so they need to feel powerful in age appropriate ways. So whatever is age appropriate for a two year old, a three year old, a four year old, we're going to continue to give them ways to feel powerful that's age appropriate for their age and stage. And so our job is, I see it as these a fence out around them of safety. And like, you can, you can do this, but you can't do this. You can, you know, you can be this powerful and have these the choices and these things, but you can't do this. And so you keep these two fences, a, a fence of how much power I have and a fence of what the limits are. And as your child grows, those fences are going to go out. You know, you're going to give them more appropriate power and the, the limits are going to get lessened as your child grows until your job is to work yourself out of a job where now they're autonomous by the time hopefully they're in their 18 or 20 years old or 30, whatever it takes. And that's, our, that's the balance. And I think it's so true. I feel like we've totally missed the mark. I always relate, I like to relate this to democracy. It really is because positive parenting is also democratic parenting. And yes, everybody has a vote and there's, you know, majority rule, but then it's also a representative idea of ultimately, you know, the president or whoever it is, the representative makes these decisions for us. And that, you know, that's us, the parents, but we've, we've missed the mark because you have freedom until your freedom affects other people. Like, and there's, there's laws in the constitution about that. Like you can't just yell fire in a theater. So I think we've, we've missed that point of, yes, we should allow our children to do certain things 
for their freedom of expression and to be creative, but it has to be within the limits of a culture that we're living in. And so like I take the example of a child in a nice restaurant. If your child is not yet capable of behaving appropriately in a nice restaurant, you need to take them out. It's not, it, you know, it's not okay to sit there and make everybody else in the restaurant miserable because your child needs to express themselves. Now we know the restaurants we can take them to, Chuck E. Cheese's and the loud places, that's fine. We expect kids to be uh, you know, loud. But in a nice restaurant, people have an expectation to a nice quiet dinner. And so you know, in those situations, I think we need to understand that what our children are doing, if it's affecting other people, then it's our job to contain that and to remedy that. You said a very, very great concept, which is also for the child to learn that they affect others. Because I think that because of the child-led movement, uh, we created most of the research says we've created the next level of narcissistic, uh, you know, genre and um, and group. So again, coming back to the balance concept of yes, we went from authoritative to children-led, and usually the scoops go from one extreme to another until we come to a balance. And it's like, all right, it's time to come to the balance again, which is yes, it is that they need to be led, but also it's not that they will always get whatever they want and whatever they feel like it because they live in a community. And the first community is is the family itself. I've worked with parents Debbie, where they've always said, no, you don't need to do anything. You just, you know, you just go ahead and all you need to do is to study and get good grades, nothing else. Well, this child does not learn at all what to do with their room, their hygiene, with how they have to clean after themselves, or even come in and do it one chore around the house. Or even if they're, you know, mom says, you know, can you get me a glass of water? Or even for them to be part of, you know, the rest of the service of bringing the food and cleaning together and doing everything together is they're they're giving it's almost like the parent's job to give and only for the child to have some sort of specific type type of things to do and then this child returns out to be 18 and 19 and 20 and then the parents are like I don't understand how come you know they're not taking off they're not doing whatever they need to do they're not handling uh, their life in that way because they're not necessarily learning responsibilities as they're growing up they're not learning how to manage money as they're growing up so then suddenly you know when they're adult and there's an expectation of act like one well it takes you know it takes a system and a step by step to go to become an adult and if we haven't really you know created those steps during the, the years that the child could, it's just the opportunity was not given to them to learn uh, because the parents love them so much and they wanted to do everything for them. Then suddenly there's this expectation of, come on now, come on, it's an adult world now, go, or go, you know, go do what you need to do. And then the child fails and comes back. And then there's also all this, you know, this roundabout of, okay, I'm a bad parent and what happened, or this is a bad child and what do it went wrong? While looking at every stage, when when a human being is ready to do something for the parents to also allow the responsibility and give the responsibility for the child to practice, fail until they succeed to go to the next level. What are your thoughts on that? So many thoughts on that. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, one thing is there's, uh, let me give, because I like to give practical tips. One tip in regards to this that you can do is every week ask yourself, what is one thing I'm doing for my child right now that my child could be doing for his or herself? Maybe it's washing their own clothes. Maybe it's 
putting, taking dishes out of the dishwasher. With children that are really little, they can make their own breakfast. If you take for a little two or three-year-old, a small thing of milk that's easily pourable and a small thing of cereal and put it at their level in the refrigerator, they can take those two things out and put them together and how powerful they feel and how valuable they feel. And you're not setting them up for failure as a big giant jug of milk, which they'll obviously spill. And so always asking yourself, what am I doing for them that they could be doing for ourselves? It's a huge error to to do so much, to do too much for our children. And look at it this way. This is how I can often convince parents. If you're doing for your children what they're capable of doing for themselves, you're robbing them of the opportunity to grow and to develop and to flourish. And so when you see it from that point, it often helps parents realize I need to be giving my children more responsibility. I need to get my value out of doing my own life, like not doing everything for my children. It's great to make your children a priority, but if you're doing for them too much, you're, you're robbing them of their life. And, and it will come back, as you said, in those results when they're adults and they're, they're floundering. Yes. Debbie Godfrey, everyone. And uh, please go to uh, the, her website, positiveparenting.com to find out about a lot of her work and how to uh, get a hold of her, especially for workshops. Maybe um, in one minute, is there anything we haven't touched upon that you really want the parents to know out there? Yeah, connection. To me, the most important thing is to connect with your child. So many of us go through our days without really taking the time to get on their level, look in their eyes, and just really connect. And especially if you're busy, like to one time a day, not every time, but one time during your day when your child approaches you and says, mom, 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 dad, 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 come see, come see. Just drop what you're doing and go see the world 100% through your child's eyes. You'd be surprised how many kids feel like they have to fight for your attention. And if you can just do that once a day, not all 100 times a day they're, they're wanting your attention, just once, you'll make a huge difference in your relationship and the connection you have with your child. Beautiful. Debbie John, Godfrey, everyone, uh, www.positiveparenting.com. And um, thank you so much for being with us and uh, sharing with us your expertise. And I hope that people do check you out and talk to you about what they can do for, with their children. Parenting, I think that you know, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a philosophical approach. And if you can get that philosophical approach, that's one thing. The other side of it is, Every single age has its own appropriate way of handling. And I think that it makes it much easier for you parents to, to have somebody who's with you and shares with you techniques, skills, and um, you know, brings down your anxiety, trust me. And most, almost every parent has a lot of guilt. Because it was like, you know, I have to work about their guilt of thinking that I was not a good parent. And I'm like, trust me, just get help because you don't even have to have that useless guilt. <laughs> <laughs> that goes through and experiences. So thank you again for being with us and allowing the time to share with everyone. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll be right back. Well, here's the ask me segment. Thank you so much for sending me your questions. Um, a 43 year old female has asked, 
because she's been married twice before and she went into another committed relationship and she felt she was ready for a committed relationship. But after about um, five months uh, being into the relationship, she just sees herself not interested anymore. She's not attracted anymore. She's not interested sexually. And she's kind of questioning herself if I've had two divorces and I'm not able to you know, carry on another relationship. Doesn't mean that I'm not committed to a relationship or I'm not, never willing to do that. Does it mean that I just want my freedom and I get frustrated or claustrophobic in a relationship? But these are all good questions. And obviously I can't answer them without getting to know you more and exploring all of those. But if you've already been in uh, multiple, you know, deep relationships and it's not working, um, it is important for you to really, really see what is it about yourself that doesn't work in the relationship? Is it that you don't know really what you want and you get into relationships without assessing the person and seeing whether that person is the right person for you? And then you get in there and you get into a committed relationship and afterward you assess and you're like, oh, this is just not the right one. But it's not, it may not be that you're not committing. It might be that you're not picking, choosing the right people in order to commit to. The other one is, do you have the skill for a committed relationship? It's very different at the beginning of the relationships, the honeymoon stages, the the sweetness and the and the novelty of any relationship pulls people in. But it takes lots of different types of skills to maintain relationships and moving forward with it. So you might assess to see whether you have those skills or not, or, or there's something that happens to you if you are actually you know allowing yourself to commit to someone where you're feeling like my freedom is taken away. There's a behavior that you're doing and creating in this relationship um, after it goes for a while and um, you feel suffocated, you don't allow yourself to just be you. Sometimes people act uh, differently when they are in an intimate relationship um, than they are in a single life as if they can't be free within a relationship. You certainly can. Um, there's a lot of negotiations that has to be done like any other relationship, but you can certainly feel free um, and do what you need to do with the negotiation that you do with the other person. And if you're not able to do those negotiations, maybe you're not in the right relationship. So first assess whether you're choosing the right people for you. Uh, write down a list of 100 items about the, your real desired relationship, like ideal relationship. And after you write those 100 items, just, just, just check to see if you're offering those, if you are capable of offering exactly what you're asking. And then when you go on dates and look at the list you wrote, and maybe nobody's going to match the hundred, you know, specifically, but are they getting an A or a B, um, you know, based on your assessment? And then also check on your skills, what skills of negotiation, of compromisation, of giving gift, of, you know, reconnecting with someone after you had a fight and how to, uh, you know, the art of giving within those uh, way of being where you could be who you need to be and the other person can be free also but then you can come together and share a life which is works for both of you um, and you may need to actually go to therapy and um, start looking at those uh, skill-based thank you Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Fuzan Zane here, and I am uh, excited to talk with Dale Walsh. He's a coach. 
for families of those diagnosed with schizophrenia. He has been coaching these families for three years and is the creator of Live Love Method to help his clients. He is guided, uh, he's guided by the mantra, recover is always an option. Following a 13-week hospitalization after being extracted from Dartmouth College, he was in a private psychiatric program where he was hospitalized nine times for five years. He then moved into his own unsupervised um, apartment and returned to college and um, from where he graduated magna cum laude in English literature. He has been diagnosed 40 years, six years ago with schizophrenia. Dale has been episode free for the past 29 years. Yay! And his mental health journey has evolved from total psychosis to a miraculous recovery. It is such a dear for, uh, for him to be here and talk about also his coaching. He's lived independently for 40 years, and Dale has built his coaching skills to help give clients the tools to have meaningful dialogue with their loved ones and improving family interactions. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fujian. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm honored that you actually chose me to represent um, my my myself and uh, the schizophrenic, the, those with schizophrenia, and the families that I coach. It's it's truly an honor, and I really enjoy having you. And I'm sure we're going to have an amazing conversation. I've had the privilege of working with uh, families and uh, with people who were diagnosed with schizophrenia for many years as I worked in the inpatient and outpatient hospitalization and follow through. So one of the things that I read about you, uh, which is you have lived an independent life, to me, it's like a thrill because we've worked so hard with families uh, for them to be able to have an independent life. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's the mental illness itself, and sometimes it's the family's anxiety about, you know, their loved one, which instead of, you know, uh, approaching it in a particular way to have them be uh, free, uh, it becomes like enabling and allows them not to become free of living independently, because it's, it's one of those illnesses that but we manage for the rest of our life. It might not be completely gone, but it doesn't mean that we... Um, we have to be hospitalized. It doesn't mean that we can't have a fruitful life. And to me, um, you are the spokesperson where you've experienced it, you lived it, you've created a successful life out of it. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear from you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just give a brief, brief background about my, my history. Uh, I, I, I was on the fast track to American success, I went to one of the best boarding schools, Phillips Exeter Academy. And then I went to Dartmouth and I, and well, I won't say unfortunately, but I did get into a lot of drugs at Dartmouth. Uh, this was like in the 1970s and the drug culture was very prevalent. And I was, uh, I, I prided myself on being the smallest, one of the smallest kids in, at Dartmouth, but also one of the biggest partiers, you know, I could out party anybody. So uh, that this, uh, this sort of like uh, escalated over the summer uh, after my freshman year. And I got an offer to be a Frisbee pro to Central America. And that just like that, that plus the drugs were basically the tipping point. And uh, basically I just spent my whole time playing Frisbee and uh, smoking pot and uh, ignoring classes and 
then I came up with what I thought was a great joke, which was, hi, I'm God. And uh, I would walk around I, for the last three days at Dartmouth, I was walking around campus saying my joke because I thought it was hilarious because how could God be five foot eight, you know? So uh, basically uh, the campus cops intervened and I thought they were taking me to the president's house and instead they took me to the infirmary. And uh, three days later, I was in a mental hospital in New York City for three months uh, with a roommate named Gabriel. Got it. <laughs> and um, was this, um, was the diagnosis based on uh, the, the, the illness coming because of the change in the brain due to the drugs? Or was it also a genetic discourse that you might have had other people in your family system um, that were diagnosed with it. And it just the onset was exactly, you know, around the uh, college time. Well, well, my mother was on psychiatric meds for 50 years. Uh, and no one in the family ever finally got, you know, like figured out what her diagnosis was. But uh, she had been hospitalized a few times and, uh, uh, and so consequently, there was a genetic predisposition towards the schizophrenia. And, but I, I think that the, especially the LSD is really the thing that's pushed me over the edge. Uh, and, uh, but one, one thing that, I, I, that happened at the hospital, my first hospitalization was, uh, I said to my doctor, I said, why am I here? There's nothing wrong with me, which is a classic symptom of mental illness, of course. But uh, he said, well, if you broke your leg, Dale, you'd uh, come in and you come to the hospital. I said, yes. He said, well, you broke, you broke your brain. And that one, that one phrase like stuck with me for 35 years because, uh, you know, I meant like uh, back in 1975, when I was first diagnosed, uh, psychiatry was basically in the, still in the dark ages. You know, there, there's been so much research and so much you know, revelations about schizophrenia and all other mental illnesses in the last 50 years that, you know, it's, it's night and day. But uh, ultimately, this belief that schizophrenia is something that you ha just have to cope with and, uh, you know, and deal with in, in the best way possible is something that I feel I, I've sort of like debunked the myth. Please share with us debunking the myth. And I also think that it's very important what you share because right now, obviously, with um, legalization of um, marijuana, there's a lot of use, and I see a lot of people who uh, have crossed kind of the path and become full, uh, fully uh, diagnosed with the schizophrenia because of the drug use. Plus that right now there's still also the next level of and the phase of uh, bringing the psychedelics in, such as LSD and psilocybin, the magic mushroom, and it's this wave of everybody wanting to experience it, and there you know the wave of also legalizing it. So you you touched upon two major uh, drugs that um, it's very much prevalent around the youth and the college kids um, and even you know uh, grownups at this point. Uh, which they're only seeing that it, yes, it does, you know, value in some level. Um, and yet there's also the destruction level that shows up with it when someone um, doesn't match their, their, their body or the way that they use doesn't match their body. Well, 
to be uh, perfectly honest, Dr. Fujian, I, I was, I smoked marijuana every day for 36 years. So uh, basically, and my doctor, when, when I was in my program, it was a one, one doctor program for uh, adolescents and young adults. And he would always say, uh, Dale, your nemesis is marijuana. And whenever he felt that I was like going psychotic, that would be the first question he would ask. He says, are you escalating your use of marijuana? And usually I, I wasn't because I was just staying at the same level the whole time. But uh, it's a very complicating factor, and especially in schizophrenia, because uh, of the tendency of, uh, of agnosognosia, where you're unaware of your symptoms, you're unaware of your illness, and so you think that nothing's wrong until you get put in the hospital. And, uh, you know, so uh, actually the last four times I was hospitalized, I put myself in the hospital uh, because, but on the other hand, my, my, my fascination and my addiction to marijuana, uh, after a while, uh, it, it stopped having an effect just because I'd been doing it so long. And also I, I knew I knew myself well enough that, that if I was going off or I was going psychotic, I would be able to like place myself in the hospital voluntarily. But um, this believes that marijuana has like nothing to do with mental illness. I think uh, I, I feel in my own case, I, I, I don't believe that anymore because I feel that, you know, I would have, I would have been in much better shape, uh, not only, you know, psychically, but also socially with my family and with my friends. Uh, I mean, my mother blamed my whole mental illness on marijuana, which I thought was a little unfair because it was actually the LSD that I think that like threw me over the edge, but uh, there's, uh, I mean, it is a complicating factor. It might not be cause you to go psychotic, but it does definitely complicate things, especially if you're following a strict, uh, if you're compliant with your medication regimen. Because, because the, the, the drug, the marijuana and the, and the other drugs are like con, con, counterproductive to what the medication is trying to do. Absolutely. You shared about debunking uh, the whole concept. Can you share a little bit about that? About the broken brain? Yeah. Uh, well, I feel that in my own experience, I mean, I, I never hallucinated in my life. Uh, my, my whole schizophrenic diagnosis was based upon delusion. And um, I, I think that it's very important for seriously mentally ill people to get beyond the agnosognosia and, and like have insight into the illness even if they don't believe it but um you know i, I mean I, I i was very fortunate in the amount of therapy and the caring of my therapist and the love of my family and everything but i think that love of family and being able to dialogue and to for for the for the diagnosis to be able to speak his mind and really express himself is like just as essential as any medication to recovery and uh you know i'm a, when, when i tell people a lot of people when i tell that you know even professionals when i tell them that my doctor told me that my brain was broken they're like scandalized because you know i'm a, every brain not not only is every brain unique 
but also every brain is always growing, you know? I mean, they used to think when I was first diagnosed that the brain didn't grow after the age of 25, but now with neuroscience and everything, uh, people are like realizing that the brain is always evolving. So, um, you know, the idea of a permanently broken brain and a helplessness of the, towards the illness is not true, I don't believe. And Dale, when you say that you've had your last episode 20 some years ago, and that means that you have been psychosis and delusion free for the past 20 some years and you are on medication for that? Uh, well, I, I, for, uh, for 40 years, I was on 30 milligrams of prolixin, which is a major, major antipsychotic medication, first generation antipsychotic. Uh, I was on 30 milligrams a day. And in the last four years, I titrated it down to five milligrams a day. So, and we're without adverse effects. So, uh, but I, I think that that's because I, I finally reached a point where I, I was like so at ease with myself. And this is a very thing for like seriously mentally ill people to do is to be at ease and to understand that, you know, there is hope. And that's why my, uh, the, 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 the motto of my company is recovery is always an option. Although, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be morbid, but 10% of schizophrenics commit suicide. So obviously if, if they commit suicide, recovery isn't an option. Well, I think when, when I've worked in the hospital, hospital a lot of times uh, the people who have is because they finally came out of the denial of the um of the illness but they couldn't take um they couldn't come to grips with uh now how to deal with the illness and then it became hopeless and they committed suicide but i think i love what you said which is not only when the person acknowledges that this is this is an illness that i need to manage and take care of myself like any other illness if i had diabetes I would have to take care of myself for the rest of my life in the way that I eat right. Or, you know, if I need to use insulin or any of those, if I have high cholesterol, I have to take care of my, you know, all of my life about what do I eat and the anti-cholesterol medicine that I have to take. And the same thing is when it shows up in the mental illness, when I come to terms with it, instead of being in denial of it, then coming to terms with it and then taking care of my body, taking care of my brain, like what you said, you, you know, having that, uh, going into the doctors, continuing your treatment, working with the medication, not using other types of um, you know, drugs in order to counter affect the medication. And then the, uh, the next thing you said, which was beautiful, is having a group of people that um, are loving you, are supporting you, are um, allowing your independence while they're there for you, like any good family, which, you know, are there for us for any of the life issues that shows up. And, um, and not to, you know, not to uh, kind of debilitate someone or uh, work with them as if like they're non-human because now they have an illness and uh, to, to allow them to be able to, uh, you know, live their best uh, strength. And I'm hearing that you were able to live your best strength. So you did go back to school, you finished it. And then, you know, you created based on your own experience, a coaching um, a, a business to be able to help the, uh, the person who needed it and the family who needs it. Say a bit about your coaching uh, method. Well, before, before I go in, just one point that you brought that made me think of, is that 
everybody talks about the stigma against mental illness and you know the societal stigma but in my own case and i think this is the case in many cases is that my own self stigma my own self stigma was the thing that really prevented me from recovering and that you know i was like i felt so much guilt and shame not only because i felt that i sort of brought on my illness myself through my drug use but also just like the the, the stigma that people would give me, you know, they'd say I'm crazy. And, you know, and, and it's a funny thing is people used to say to me, you aren't crazy. You're the sanest guy I know. And I'd say, see me off my medication, you know? So, uh, but the self stigma, I think is a real problem that's basically overlooked in a lot of, a lot of cases because that self stigma is what prevents a person from believing they can get better. Yes, and, and even going and helping, uh, getting help for themselves. Right. So, so we have about kind of one minute and I really want to give you that type of uh, space so you talk about what you do in your coaching uh, business. Well, when, when I first started coaching, I, I was sort of like a, a drift at sea, you know, but basically I, I, I've developed what I call the live love method, which is uh, learn, learn, integrate, validate, explore, and then listen, observe, value, and express. And those are like the eight steps I feel that I present to my clients to help them really come to a point where they can like deal with the crisis that arise with their loved ones and everything. And uh, so uh, I, I'm still basically in the beginning stages of my coaching business, but uh, I, I know that I am serving a, a very big, and underserviced uh, population and i call the families of i call my clients and the families of schizophrenics the forgotten victims of mental illness because uh, everybody says you know everybody's concerned with with the patient or whatever you want to call but you know nobody thinks about the caregivers and you know the strain that they're under and you know i mean it's very debil it's very debilitating to be be in this position where you feel you can't leave home for two hours to go shopping because you don't know what your uh, loved one is going to do while you're gone. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the burnout um, and the not knowing and sometimes, you know, even the uh, the fear of the psychosis that shows up for the uh, for the caretakers is high, high level. And I'm positive that they can utilize your services and um, your knowledge in how to do that. I'm, I personally will send you clients because I know um, I've worked 30 years um, and know that how much the family also needs it, not only to meet needs um, support, but to know that you can be uh, a successful citizen. And I think that what you said is very important. I think that when it shows up for bipolar, uh, we've had a lot of different um, people who have been um, a voice, a voice of reason, who have gone through the experience themselves. They are managing uh, bipolar and um, you know they come in and they show their success and what's the, happening with them. We haven't had um, many people who have uh, been you know struggling with schizophrenia and have been able to come in and do this. So you're doing a great, great, great service by sharing uh, your uh, vulnerabilities, your illness, your strength, your uh, resilience, uh, the way you manage it for everyone. So thank you for doing that.
Well, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Fujian. It's been a real pleasure. And maybe I can come in again and further elucidate on my journey a little bit. Especially since your book is coming out. So please, please let me know. We, I, we want our audience to have an opportunity again to, uh, to have a chance to get your book. So when your book is out, uh, let us know. And we want to have you on the show again. Everyone, Dale Walsh, find him at dalewalsh.com. And uh, I also have a I also have a phone number. Uh, it's uh, it's a toll free number. It's one eight 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 four D E W L O V for do love after the do love live love message. So uh, and I can also be found on Facebook and uh, Facebook Messenger. Just look up Dale Walsh. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dr. Fujian. It's been a real pleasure. For everyone out there, create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.